Okay, so today I'm back with Rupert Mackerson. We're at Newbury, Rupert. Thanks very much for being to talk to me again. Um, you've just said your book, Frankie de Tory's British Classic Winners, published, but as Rupert Collins, not Rupert Mackerson. Why don't you use your real name? I've always uh, I've written a bit of fiction under my own name, and when I turned to writing fact, I used a pen name on the recommendation of a great John Welcome. Okay, now I see from the cover of your book that you were brought up in Kent, but you're a you're an aristocrat, aren't you? But you were riding point to pointers. Was that a job necessity or something you loved doing? This is as a youngster, a young man. Yeah, well, no, I, I mean, from the age of 15, I've always been into racing. And I rode as an amateur for six or seven seasons till I broke my back in the army. Okay, now you mentioned the army there. You used to ride uh, horses as a cavalry officer and yes. also as a jockey. Yeah. Um, so you know a bit about the subject matter. Well, I hope so. I mean, I rode, uh, I spent the first eight years of myself basically as a professional horseman. Okay, now. Firstly, I spent four years in Ireland where I rode out most days for a famous chap called Georgie Wells. Great trainer. So this is because you loved it rather than because you needed the money? No, no. I, 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 I rode because I loved it. It cost me money. <laughs> so. Before we get into the book, which, we're gonna, which is the reason we're talking to you again, um, you just celebrated your 83rd birthday. So 82nd. 82nd, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I'm guessing that you've been coming here to Newbury longer than most people here today. Yes, I first came here when I was with Brian Marshall, uh, the famous uh, jockey who rode back-to-back -back winners for Vincent, Vincent O'Brien on two different horses. When I was with him, must have been 58. I've been coming here since 58. Okay, and you, um, they, they talk about Arkell winning uh, the Gold Cups, but they don't talk about him getting beaten in the Hennessy, but you were here. Yeah, he, he, won, yeah, he got beaten by Stalbridge Colonist, um, who was by a horse called Colonist, owned by Sir Winston Churchill. I'm halfway through a book on uh, Sir Winston and his horses, which comes out next year, published by uh, these people, White Owl. I've got a few questions about uh, Winston Churchill in a bit, for, yeah. but we'll get to the... Did you ever actually ride under rules here? No, I never had... Fences are a bit too big for me here. I was more like riding at Folkestone and Y. Fences are a little bit softer. Now, um, somebody told me that... Well, you told me that your parents didn't let you ride in public until you were 18. Why was that? Well, they just, just said, no, you can't ride in public, and that was it. My father just said, no. You're at school, you will not ride in public, and that was that. You, so I didn't ride till I was 18. In you were, as, as some people might know, you were quite a rebellious adult, so you just took that, did you, when you were a child? You just said, okay, Dad, and left it at that? Well, there's nothing I could do, you know. <laughs> I hadn't got a horse of my own, uh, and he told people I used to ride work for, he's not to ride in public, and that was the end of the matter. Don't get this, it's not in the 50s. And you, you weren't even, uh, um, you couldn't vote, or you, you're, you were a minor till you're 21, not 18. Okay. Different world. Now, as a jockey, you rode on the flat, winners, continental Europe? Where did yes, you... that was great fun. I, I had, yeah, I rode three winners out in Belgium and Germany. So it was, uh, obviously, as an amateur jockey? Yes, in amateur races, yeah. And did you ride out in amateur races over here? Uh, yes, uh, I rode in amateur, but not on the flat, over hurdles and over fences, yes. Now, you've written this book about Frankie de Tory. Yeah. Um, 
you must have seen some great jockeys ride over the years before Frankie came along. Yes, I mean, the first jockey uh, I remember seeing as a kid was uh, Sir Gordon Richards. He turned up at Folkestone uh, in a great big Rolls Royce, waving to a crowd like the Queen Mother. Uh, uh, I watched him, and I've seen all the great jockeys since Sir Gordon, and there's been some very, very good jockeys. But Lester and Frankie were probably the best two since the war. But a lot of people thought Sir Gordon Richards was very good. 26, uh, 26 champion jockeyships, but unlike Frankie, he only rode 12 classic winners, or 14, I can't remember which. Frankie rode 23. So Frankie uh, is a very, very, very good jockey. Lester rode 40. Those of you two great jockeys, the greatest two jockeys of great jockeys I've seen since, nine, since 1953 or something. And if you had to put them in order, who's the top? Oh, Lester. You just that little bit, a little bit stronger, a little bit uh, better, I think. But Frankie wasn't far behind him. Now, you were great mates with the late Lester Piggott. Yeah. Uh, I used to turn up at your bookstall at Epsom and um, sign books on Derby Day. Yes, and I worked, for, I worked with him. Um, I used to do signings with him in France and, and in um, Ireland. Now, everybody, if you read, there's so many stories about Lester Piggott, a lot of them about his being frugal, that sort of thing. But you've got one about cuddling up in the back of uh, Brian Marshall's sports car. Oh, yeah. oh yes, oh, that was funny. When I was a kid, I was 16 at um, Lambourne with Brian Marshall. And he was very, very good to me, Brian. And he, used to, he and Mrs. Marshall had a sports car. And they used to take me racing. And behind the sports car was a place which was meant for a couple of not very big suitcases. But I was transported, I expect other people, transported in this space meant for, uh, meant for suitcases. Anyway, one day we were off to, um, off to Windsor and with Brown, he was, uh, you know, if he said he was going to leave at 12 o'clock, the wheels probably went at 11.59. So we were off, we were going to, to Windsor and Brown was giving Lester uh, a lift. So Lester turns up late, five minutes late, by which time smoke was starting to come out of Brown's ears. And Lester turns up, and Brown says in a loud voice, "You're laced, Lester. Get in there," pointing to the back of the sports car where I was already. And uh, Lester says, uh, "Not much room in there." And Brown, by now, was you know a bit warmed up, and said in a loud voice, "Get in there, Lester, and put your uh, uh, feet round um, Rupert's ears like a pair of puppies." Anyway, so we, that's how I met Lester, in the, squashed in the back, the back of Brown Marshall's sports car. And quite often, uh, when I used to bump into Lester in later years, he used to say, we aren't puppies anymore, are we? Now, Lester would have already ridden a derby winner at this He'd point. He'd already ridden a, a derby winner. He wouldn't tr a chalk jockey wouldn't get in the back like Lester did. I, mean, I should think... Lester called Brown sir or governor, but he was a tough chap, uh, Marshall. Now, when you were um, when you were a young child, you'd been taken to the races from quite an early age. Yes. Um, I hear you didn't have enough money to pull up the sixpence for Prince Monolulu's tips. What was all that about? <laughs> oh, it, was a, it was a day I've described uh, seeing um, 
seeing Sir Gordon arrive in his roller waving to a crowd like he was the Queen Mother. And also waiting there was um, Prince Monolulu. Probably, I've never seen him before, so this was something, you know, <laughs> out of out the other world. And he said to me, uh, sixpence for a tip. I hid behind mother. And Prince Monolulu then said to my mother, the young gentleman hasn't got sixpence, has he? And my mother said, I doubt it. And that was the end of a conversation with Prince Monolulu. Prince Monolulu would be in trouble these days trying to sell tips to a child, wouldn't he? <laughs> um, talking about being a child, yeah. you had some quite lofty ambitions as a youngster when you were asked what you wanted to be when you grew up. Oh, that was funny, yes. Um, my father um, stood uh, as an MP in uh, 1945, towards the end of the war, and for Folkestone, which was his hometown. And I remember I was, I, I think my parents stayed with other relations. I and Nanny uh, stayed in a hotel by the, the Lees, which is a, a grass area. And I, and I obviously heard as a child nothing about Winston Churchill, Winston Churchill. I mean, he could have been an, an engine driver, Winston Churchill. I didn't know he, what it was, who he was. So some very nice man came up to, to Nanny and me and said, young man, what are you going to, to do? Uh, when you grow up and expect you to say, I'm going to be an airline pilot or I'm going to be a train driver, to which I replied, I'm going to be Winston Churchill. Did you, did you ever have any political ambitions after, you take after your father? No, certainly not. Two things, three things I knew were time I was ten. I didn't like smoking, his father smoked, smoked uh, insistently. I wasn't going in for royal halls, uh, the, the uh, Royal Scots Greys because father did nothing but talk about Royal Scots Greys, and I certainly wasn't going into politics. I made my mind up about three things by the time I was ten. Okay, Rupert, in part one, um, you mentioned Winston Churchill. Now, people know you are a baronet, you're Sir Rupert Mackeson, so I'm assuming that the bad baronet of the Mackeson dynasty was brought up in a palace very similar to Winston. Is that, is that your childhood? Yes, I mean, I was brought up in a very large country house, you know, uh, but my father wasn't. My father was very much a self-made man. He was a good soldier and then became a politician. Was it, was he, a military man. Man. he was a military man, your father? Yes, my father was a, As yeah, a in, in, a, in the uh, Scots Greys. And your grandfather was well, the Mackeson dynasty? Yeah, my, my grandfather and great-uncle had a little brewery in Hyde which they sold in 1921. And that was the Mackeson yeah, brand that we know, yeah. we know today. It was really very small, and then when it was bought by Whitbreads in the 50s, they used um, the stout. They, um, they um, spent a lot of money um, uh, uh, expanding the stout business. But it was a tiny little brewery. Okay, and before you went into to, uh, being a, a, a jockey or a riding out horses, you had some very decent education. Your father well, spent some money on your, on your uh, education. Well, no, the first place I went to was Paedophilia Hall called Maidwell. I mean, we got, I mean, it was run by a paedophile, I mean, the most ghastly man. Um, he probably had 60 boys and he managed to beat at least six every night and pull one's hair. Then I went on, then I went to Eglin. Eggley in Somerset was a lovely place and I mean I spent 
five years at Harrow in the same house, headmaster's house, 50 or 80 or 100 years before, Churchill got educated. So I saw him four or five times at Harrow um, on songs. We used to sing songs. Now you were, um, you said, I read something you wrote that you were brought up pretty much by a nanny. So was, that, was it a bit of a lonely sort of childhood? Being I didn't have a very happy childhood. My parents were m immensely ambitious. Uh, uh, my father showed less interest in me than he did his gun, his gun dog. Yeah, I was brought up by a very lazy nanny. And, uh, you know, one got up, one had breakfast at 8.30, then one went to walk. time I was eight, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, write my own name. So yeah, it was a bit of a struggle when I went to Pedophilia Hall, i.e. a maid walk. So what was your sort of, your schooling and then your military background, um, your military career sort of mapped out for you 10 years in advance? No, no. Um, I decided I wanted to play with horses, so I went to university in Ireland, because um, Trinity Dublin, when I went there, was a Protestant uh, university, and the local Catholics couldn't go, so it's very easy to get into Trinity Dublin when I went there. You could get in, and you won't believe it, with five O levels. I did, in fact, have some A levels, but a lot of English people went to Trinity. Okay, and I'm just interested, you mentioned your, your grandfather earlier. You told me that he moved, after he sold the brewery, he moved to the country and, and I'm quoting, tried to become a country gentleman. So what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, uh, very sort of middle, middle class. Um, my gra grandfather and his brother, uh, George Maxson, who was a brilliant cricketer, they were just not perfectly normal people living, you know, in semi-detached or terrace houses in Folkestone and Hyde, but when a bit of money, they raised a bit of money selling the brewery, my uh, grandfather decided he wanted to be a country gentleman, so went and bought a, a house um, near Canterbury uh, and tried to live a grand life. He, he was, I, I found a, uh, an obituary in a local paper, he was, they just laughed at his grandeur. It was a bit of a snooty victory, was it? Yeah, a snooty old bastard. <laughs> no. I think pretty humorless. On the, um, back to the book, which is why we're yeah. revisiting you, but I could talk to you forever. But, I don't uh, know why. <laughs> On the uh, Frankie the Tories British Classic Winners book, why did you decide to write it? Was it when he, decide, when he announced he was going to retire? I can't remember. Yes, it must have been when he was his last season. I, I think perhaps a, a good a, 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 a test of a jockey is what he does in the classics, or perhaps at Ascot. You know, the chips are down, everybody wants to win the uh, classic, so there's no quarter given. I think, you know, to win 23 classics, okay, Leicester did 40, is a great feat. I mean, nobody's, I think, done more than 40. 12 or 14 since the war. Lester and he were just great, great jockeys. And there's been plenty of other great jockeys. But just they had that edge on the day, the classic day. And so you've got, you've got friends in high places. John Gosling wrote the foreword. Yes, I mean, Gosling's always been the most wonderful person to me. He sees me, um, he used to see me at Epsom a lot. And if he's had anything with Frankie on it, 
refuse to take it from me and go down and get Frankie to sign it. And we send, he, he, he likes books, he likes pictures, and like so many people in racing, if you're polite to them and you don't hassle them, they're very helpful to, to, to artists and to writers. So Gosden's, you know, like so many people, a, a, a very nice man. Obviously a brilliant, brilliant trainer. So which, which of these classic winners would have been the most memorable for you? I, 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 um, I think the ones when he, I, I haven't got the book in front of me, when he um, uh, came wide, uh, I can't remember quite recently, when he comes wide, I think, you know, he's just got this wonderful feel. I mean, the day he, I thought the greatest race he ever rode was when he won the arc. Came wide, drawn wrong, didn't panic. You know, he's, he's individually, he thinks, like Leicester. And how many of those, those victories that you've written about there do you think he won because it was him? I think probably I would have, he's probably on those 23 races, six were great rides. But the other ones, it's so instinctive, you know, uh, he, he's an instinctive rider, suddenly he didn't plan it, he's in the front where well, horses want to go, he let the horse go. He had great empathy for what he was riding. Leicester had this empathy. Uh, and I thought Canaan, Canaan, Mick Canaan uh, rode a great race on uh, when he won the arc. You know, he, he just, you know, they're three or four pounds better than the average jockey. And I tell you, I thought on his day was a wonderful jockey, was Dunwoody. I thought one or two of those races he rode over fences were just superb. Now you've written this as a proper historical document in great, in great detail. I'm assuming you had to go back and revisit a lot of these races. It wasn't all just done from memory and you've looked into Which? the breeding in, 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 the book, in the book there. Uh, I do say earlier on in the book that really it shouldn't be in my name. It should, I mean, probably the, the greatest um, racing historian, a chap called Jim Beavis. He helped me a lot. He, he did, I did the left-hand pages, he did the right-hand pages. So I, uh, it would have been a mammoth task to do it by yourself. Jim Beavis did the research for me. And which one for, that you witnessed personally would have made the biggest impression on you, do you think? Who? Which ride would have made the biggest impression R on you? Rider. Which ride of, of the Tories' winners? What is it may say? I think that um, Frankie's greatest ride was in the, uh, in a classic, was Soul Sister this year in the Oaks. It was magnificent. Uh, just the same, it was a very similar race uh, when he won the, the arc on uh, Golden Horn. I think that those were two, uh, I don't think any, those, Frankie on Soul Sister and Frankie on Golden Horn in the arc were as good a, a, a ride as any jockey has ever ridden in the classics. Uh, and that includes Fred Archer, because I know a lot about Fred Archer. As you may know, I've written books of perhaps the greatest racing historian of all time, John Welcome, and he was uh, taught me all about Fred Archer. No, I thought Soul Sister was wonderful, and was as was Golden Horn in the Ark, absolutely superb.
Okay, you've got Fra Frankie's first classic uh, winner was in 1994, and his last was this year. Yeah. Um, he's had some scrapes along the way, as well as some fantastic rides. How do you think he's managed to stay on top for so long? Well, I mean, he's a great jockey, simple as that, and determined. I, d I think you, um, the public don't realise what a tough uh, life being a top jockey is. You've got to be tough and determined. Okay, now, I'm assuming that when you decided to write the book and pen the last chapter on uh, So Sisters Oaks, you're expecting him to actually retire. So yes. what price do you make an updated version of this book being required? Even money. He'll, he'll, he'll be back for Ascot. I mean, I think it's very hard for these people when they're living a high-powered life just to walk away from it. Dunwoody found it hard. I think he, yeah, uh, 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 and there's no need to retire. I think he may have got a bit bored, and I think you know you make a new life I I in America. I mean, I think he's very lucky. He has uh, Godston uh, as such a close friend. Godston will be pushing him and advising him about America. Godston made his name in America. No, I think he'll be okay. I expect to see him at Ascot this year. Now, this this book was published by Pen and Sword Books. There's been, been a few other racing books brought out by them recently. Have you got anything else in the pipeline? Yeah, there's a couple of books on the pipeline. I do, um, uh, I do a book on um, coming out in August uh, uh, on Winston Churchill's racehorses. There's been nothing on his racehorses, um, so I do that. And Pen and Sword, and I, I edit for them, so I work for them. Uh, and there's a book in the pipeline. We haven't signed the contract, but I hope to sort the contract out next week. Now, I heard rumour of a book that's got a terrifying title. Who? It's a book that's got a terrifying title. Uncle Nasty's Bedtime Stories. Now, what's <laughs> well, who, Who's Uncle Nasty? <laughs> I've been Uncle Nasty for many years. Uh, but that book has had to be um, postponed because I've been sort of waylaid to do the, the um, to do the um, uh, Churchill book and I've got to deliver it by the 1st of April so I'm under pressure. I was a bit worried it might have been uh, a, a big massive pile in the in tray for the pen and sword legal team <laughs> before it was published. That, that's, that's not the no, 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 no. Interesting. The, as I signed the contracts, I'm the editor. <laughs> I'm a person if, if any libel goes up front. Now, of course, very, very careful. About, it is incumbent on editors to be careful about libel. One really doesn't want to get mixed up in that. Right, and uh, finally, of course, the book that we're all waiting for. <laughs> oh, well, I, in fact, I have, I'm, with the help of um, with the help of Jim Beavis, quite a lot is done already. Because the, la the last time I spoke to you, you said you were still waiting for a few people that say... No, uh, he's gone, he's oh. gone. <laughs> the ghastly little mafiosa, um, uh, Zilka's gone. He went last year, age 99. So he catch you hanging in there. Well, hopefully we'll speak to you, we'll, we'll complete these interviews with the trilogy, talking about the uh, your <laughs> book when that comes out. So, okay. Rupert, thank you very much for talking to us and... Uh, Good luck with the uh, the new book. Yeah, okay. Okay, Rupert, I've just had to put all this back together again. 
tell me what the last thing uh, Frankie Dottori said to you. There's, there's, no, there's no swearing in it, is there? I haven't spoken with Frankie as it happened for some time. It was a few years ago at Epsom at a spring meeting, and he comes up to me and he says, I know sign for you, you bring me bad luck till after, till, till season finished. You send me stuff, season finished, I sign. He did. I, I said I sent stuff up to Gosden's yard, good as gold, as soon as the season was over, Frankie signed lots of prints for us. We didn't bring him much, much bad luck this season, did you? That's for sure. No, no. <laughs> I don't think I did bring him any. But it's typical of Frankie. I know sign for you, you bring me bad luck. <laughs> the end of the season.